Hello and welcome. I am Dr. Richard Bogan, and on behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to welcome you and thank you for joining us for today's CMEO briefcase entitled Treatment Factors. What should be driving my treatment decisions? Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Axon. I am an associate clinical professor at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Columbia, South Carolina, and the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina, and principal of Bogan Sleep Consultants, LLC, in Columbia. Our learning objective for today is to evaluate the constellation of patient symptoms, especially excessive sleepiness, but also cognitive impairment and functioning in individuals who are sleepy, that influence treatment selection for excessive daytime sleepiness associated with obstructive apnea. Now, let's meet our patient, Donovan. Uh, well, good morning, Donovan. Uh, thanks for coming in. How are you doing today? Hi, Dr. Bogan. I'm doing okay. I've just been feeling kind of tired all the time, and I was hoping you could help me with that. Yeah, well, people with with sleep apnea, a lot, you know, most of them are tired and sleepy. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, it can take a while to adapt to the CPAP therapy, but we'll see what we can do to help. Could you tell me a little bit more about what's going on? Well, the, the CPAP therapy is, has been going well for the most part. Um, uh, I've slept with it every night for the past three months. My wife tells me that I'm not snoring as much anymore, and, and I do feel more rested than before I started CPAP. I haven't really had any struggle with it. I mean, I, I sleep maybe seven, eight hours a night, and I don't take it off. But it, it's strange because I'm still tired with it sometimes. Yeah, we see that sometimes. Um, the idea, obviously, with a CPAP is we're trying to correct those oxygen levels. Um, don't hold your breath, don't snore, and decrease work of breathing because it's putting pressure on those throat muscles to keep them from collapsing. But you have to have an adequate quantity and quality and continuity of sleep. And most people uh, feel better. Uh, were you having any other issues uh, besides sleepiness, has anything else been going on in terms of medicines or your medical status? Um, well, yes, I've, I've also had trouble at work. I, mean, I have been feeling more awake and that's helped, but it's, I feel like my head is in the clouds and, and it's still hard to think sometimes. I keep getting in trouble with my boss for messing up calls when they come in. I hope if I can keep up CPAP, things will get better. Yeah, well, I mean, with time, patients do get better, and oftentimes we see the sleepiness get better, you know, within two to four weeks, depending upon how one is adapting. But then there are some individuals who still have persistent sleepiness, the brain fog that can occur. And when you have brain fog, then it slows the brain down. You have problems potentially with executive function and speed of processing and even memory sometimes in workplace performance. Um, but we can do some other things potentially in terms of treating you. But before we discuss them, can you tell me about the medications you're taking? Sure. Um, I'm taking omezoprone for my uh, heartburn, citalopram. My... Thank <laughs> oh, you. Never... I can never pronounce my, my medication. <laughs> That's all right. It's okay. Uh, citalopram. How would I do with that one? Yeah. So, so that's for my, my depression. Um, and I'm taking some weight loss supplements that I bought online to help me lose weight since I, I heard that losing weight can help me with my sleep apnea. Yeah, that's that's for sure. We might ought to 
look at the herbal things. You never know. But um, anyway, thank you for letting me know. I think it's important for me to know, you know, what medicines you're taking, how much sleep you're getting. Are there any comorbidities or any new things that are going on? And knowing what medicines you take and what you're taking really helps me decide what treatments would be best for you. We obviously need to make sure the CPAP is doing what we want it to do, and we can do a download and evaluate that data. But we do have, there are some medications that we can potentially do because we know, it depends on who you study, but maybe 20, 30% of patients, despite adequate therapy, still have sleepiness. And we do have some medicines. So let's talk some more about that. That sounds great, Dr. Bogan. Now that we have met our patient, Donovan, let's discuss his case. He's 45 years old. He has severe obstructive sleep apnea and was initiated on CPAP three months ago. That's an important duration of time. He complains of being tired all the time. And he says, like my sleep switch is never turned off. He has complaints about his workplace performance um, at his call center. His sleepiness and lack of attention has actually caused him to miss calls. And tolerating CPAP, he's 100% adherence, but still has sleepiness and cognitive dysfunction. Now, when we look at adherence, we have to look at hours of use as well. Um, so on our download, we can see what is his apnea, hypopnea index, how many hours of use does he have on a daily basis, and what is his adherence level. He has a past medical history of obesity and reflux and some depression, which is treated. His original AHI was 31 episodes per hour, so just north of being severe. But his current download shows two episodes per hour. He does have a BMI of 33 and an Epworth score of 13. The Epworth score, you know, is our way of saying, what's your heart rate, blood pressure, how sleepy are you? And 13 out of 24 is sleepy. Blood pressure is 132 over 84. And of course, as he said, he's on omeprazole and citalopram. And currently his depression is, is doing pretty well. So why is he still sleepy? And we see this, and I mentioned to him, probably depends on the cohort that you study, uh, but you know, many patients with obstructive sleep apnea present to us because they're tired and sleepy. We put them on CPAP, they're adherent. And as I said, we want to correct that oxygen level, correct the abnormal breathing, eliminate snoring, because snoring is a signal the airway resistance is high, and decrease work of breathing, decrease the airway resistance. And so when we do that, we expect our patients to do better, and many of them are better. So that Epworth score might have been 15, 16, now down to 13. So he feels better. But probably 20, 30% of patients on CPAP who use it in excess of six hours a day are still sleepy. You know, why is that? And we're trying to explore the science of why these individuals might be sleepy. But um there is a dose-response relationship. If you use the CPAP more, then we see the sleepiness uh, do better. And actually, when we do multiple sleep latency tests on some of these patients, they're abnormal, and we can actually measure the improvement. And when we do quality of life measures, we see that these individuals show significant improvement. So this is prevalent, and uh, we're trying to figure out what on earth is going on. Of course, when people are sleepy, it slows down the brain. And so these individuals not only have sleepiness and fatigue, but they have executive function problems. So speed of processing, thinking, memory. And Donovan said that. He says, I'm having trouble, you know, answering the calls and thinking. So the attention span, speed of processing, 
are all problems. But of course, we can see depression as well and mood changes, irritability, uh, the melancholia, anxiety. I mean, he's worried about his job. So these can be problems that we can see. And of course, I always ask my patients, uh, do you take a nap? Do you have to take a nap? Do you doze when you're trying to be awake? Uh, are you falling asleep when you're trying to stay awake and you can't stay awake? And then, oh, by the way, how is your driving? Because we worry about fatigue-related accidents in these individuals. So mood, um, executive function, tired, sleepy, workplace performance, quality of life, driving, these are all things that are really important for us to look at. Now, of course, when sleep is fragmented, every time you stop breathing and hold your breath and your oxygen drops, you release adrenaline. Oh, by the way, the adrenaline uh, constricts the blood vessels, increases afterload and preload for the heart, um, disturbs the nocturnal sleep. And sleep, of course, is important. Uh, it's just as important as diet and exercise. So we see other comorbidities. We see hypertension. We see cardiac arrhythmias, uh, sleepy brain is a hungry brain. We see obesity, mood changes, reflux. And when you're working hard to breathe um, and airway resistance is high, you tend to reflux more. And oh, by the way, poor sleep, as well as all this adrenaline from the awakenings can aggravate uh, diabetes. So we can see insulin resistance and worsening of diabetes. The important thing is, is to correct the abnormal breathing. I mean, keep the airway open, decrease work of breathing, correct that oxygen level. But some of these patients are still sleepy and it has an impact on quality of life. So what should we do in those individuals? And we actually have three medications that are available. These We call these wakefulness promoting medicines. We, we technically don't call them stimulants because they're not scheduled two drugs, they're scheduled four drugs. But modafinil and armodafinil uh, have been approved. Modafinil has two molecules in it, an R and an S isomer. And if you take the R isomer out, you have R modafinil. So these uh, molecules, uh, typically modafinil 200 to 400 milligrams a day and the R modafinil up to 250 milligrams a day, most of the patients take it first thing in the morning. Like any medicine that activates the brain, we can see headache, dizzy, nausea uh, in these individuals. Or if we overstimulate the brain, uh, then we could see some anxiety, even tremor, or maybe even some insomnia. But the important message is, is that in patients who are responders and don't have any side effects, they notice really within an hour, that, wow, my brain is working, I'm more awake and I'm more alert and uh, I can think better. Speed of processing, memory potentially uh, could be better. When you look at a meta-analysis in these individuals, um, Looking at broad studies, I mean, we can see a signal uh, in terms of the Epworth score. The pivotal trial data showed that these individuals showed benefit in terms of their excessive sleepiness. And when you actually look at the studies, the Epworth score dropped in these meta-analyses by over two. And we think it's clinically significant, it's meaningful. If we get a two to three drop in the Epworth score from the baseline value, and these individuals will show significant clinical improvement and they feel better. I would love to get that effort score below 10 if we could. And sometimes we can, but in some patients, they're grateful to, to go from 13 to 11 or 13 to 10 in terms of their effort score as we do that.
when we when we think about our treatment considerations, we always think about the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacodynamics. Modafinil, armadafinil, we think primarily affects dopamine. And so what are the patients taking in terms of their medications? Uh, are they using the CPAP? What Are they entrained? Are they fitting their circadian rhythm? Their brain wants to go to sleep at a certain time. What time are they taking the medicines? Because the medicines will work better when the brain wants to be awake and they're getting adequate sleep. But there are some potential drug-drug uh, interactions. And particularly with the modafinil, armadafinil, we can we can see that um, they're metabolized through the liver, through the 3A4 system, and uh, they have some effect on these enzymes. Um, oral contraceptives, steroidal contraceptives are also metabolized through that same pathway. So the 3A4 system in the liver is, uh, there is some augmentation of that process, so it reduces the effectiveness of steroidal contraceptives. Now, for hormone replacement therapy, that not, might not be a big issue, but for birth control, it's a big issue. You don't want to make any mistakes. It does uh, increase some molecules are metabolized through the 2C19. Uh, Paroxetine comes to mind, um, but it does have some effect in inhibiting 2C19, so we have to be aware, and our electronic medical record systems will tell us there's potential drug-drug interaction, and we can look at that. But it's possible that with, with modafinil or modafinil, we might increase the drug exposure in some of these individuals. So if we do have a patient who's taking those, then, then we might. might not be a bad thing to have a proton pump inhibitor, more of that. Um, but, but we should take that into account anytime we use these medications because of this 3A4 induction and some inhibition of 2C19. Then we have soriamfetol. Soriamfetol is our latest molecule. Um, soriamfetol works through both dopamine and norepinephrine. It's a reuptake inhibitor. It's, it's highly selective. And as you know, dopamine and norepinephrine are, are one of the subsystems for maintaining alertness in patients. It's been approved in narcolepsy, but also sleepiness in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. Um, this particular drug is available at 37.5 milligrams up to 150 milligrams. And the pivotal trial data showed good efficacy. In fact, the effect size of this particular molecule was quite high. So when you looked at the, the Epworth score, the change in the Epworth score was pretty substantial. And we also looked at maintenance of wakefulness tests. And like most of our CNS stimulants and wakefulness promoting medications, headache, dizzy, nausea are things that we look for, or anxiety, uh, decreased appetite can occur in some of these individuals. The interesting thing about soriamfetol is that it is renally excreted. Um, there's no evidence really that it causes any problems in terms of um, hepatic induction or inhibition of enzymes, uh, which we can extrapolate. And theoretically, we, we don't have to worry about as much in terms of drug-drug interaction in these in this particular drug. So if we look at the pivotal trial data, uh, the efficacy of soriamfetol on excessive sleepiness, we have extensive studies, both in narcolepsy and in obstructive sleep apnea patients, but um, 
these individuals did show significant improvement in the effect size in terms of the Epworth score. Interestingly, in this study, we took patients who were adherent to CPAP and using the Medicare rules of adherence, uh, but some of the patients were not adherent, and the FDA and the sponsor wanted to know, because some of our patients don't use CPAP. We want them to use CPAP. We want them to be treated to reduce the medical risk, and we did everything we could do to get those patients to be treated, but some of them, 29%, uh, did not adhere to their CPAP, and it wasn't because of the medicines. These are people who at baseline were not adherent. And we looked at efficacy and safety in that group as well. I think that's really important. Um, and what we saw was that even in those patients, the drug was effective and it had a, a very similar safety profile. So I think there's a strong message there that it, you know the drug is effective in terms of this excessive sleepiness. And when we looked at the outcome measures, the maintenance of wakefulness tests in these individuals increased anywhere, depends on the dose and the person. Remember, this is group data, uh, 3.2 minutes to 13.4 minutes, 13.4 minutes improvements in, in the maintenance of wakefulness tests. Most of these people, remember the MWT, we put them in a dark room, lights out and say, try to stay awake and they're sleepy. So they fall asleep in about 10, 11, 12 minutes somewhere. And if we can improve them by 13 minutes, that's a big deal. Um, if you're normal and I do this to you, you know, you might be anywhere from 19 to 23 minutes. So, um, I mean, just as a point of reference, um, the Epworth score, remember, we want to get at least a 2.5 change if we can. The Epworth score reductions ranged from 4.3, depending on the dose up to 8.9 points. So that's the point I made about the effect size. The effect size in these individuals in this study was quite impressive. And oh, by the way, the FOSQ10, which is a short version of the functional outcomes of sleep quality questionnaire, looked at quality of life and the total points range from 1.5 to 3.5. We think the clinically meaningful change in this scale is 0.5. So these patients, not only subjectively, I'm more awake, objectively, maintenance of wakefulness tests, I'm more awake. And oh, by the way, my quality of life is improved. And when we asked them, patient global impression of change, blinded, you know, placebo compared to the other, the patient said, you know, I feel better. And, um, so compared to the placebo group, now the 37.5 milligrams didn't make it on the PGIC, but I think the, the message is in the pivotal trial data, there was clinical evidence of efficacy that really, quite frankly, was pretty important. So we talked about the, you know, the pivotal trial data, and this was a 12-week trial, uh, double-blind placebo parallel, so at these different doses of 37.5, 75, 150, and 300 milligrams. And of course, the big endpoint was the upward score, how sleepy are these individuals? And at baseline, these individuals, as I recall, were up around 15, 16. I mean, they're pretty sleepy. And then so we're looking for a signal. And as you can see, at the end of 12 weeks, blinded, these patients said, gosh, my upward score improved up to 13, um, excuse me, uh, up to nine on the upward. I was thinking about the, the uh, maintenance of wakefulness test. So 
subjective, objective improvement, then we stopped the drug. And that gave us a chance to see any withdrawal. Um, and there was there was really no withdrawal. Twelve weeks is not enough for tolerance, I don't think. I mean, we're, we might have some patients who might have tolerance. So there was an open-label extension study, and I would encourage you to look at that open-label extension trial. Of course, that was open, so we could adjust the dose based on based on patient response, and we saw continued improvement, almost a year of improvement in the excessive sleepiness. So we don't normally think of tolerance in these individuals based on that data. So again, rebound, no rebound, uh, no withdrawal, and no evidence of tolerance with this particular molecule. And of course, we had the subjective Epworth, and then we had objective maintenance of wakefulness tests at 12 weeks, and we have quality of life and patient global impression of change. All of those signals supported the efficacy of the drug. So as we've discussed, one common complaint in sleep apnea patients is problems with cognition, such as our patient Donovan. And this can affect many aspects of a patient's life, but we have some data that suggests Solreamphetol may have an effect on cognition. And this was an interesting study design. Um, so we took patients with obstructive sleep apnea who were on CPAP, who were still sleepy, and we actually did some memory testing in those and speed of processing measurements. But this test is really designed to sort of test your memory, short-term memory, and how you use that in processing. So this was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled crossover study so the patients functioned as their own control, and the patients uh, obviously had sleepiness. They were on their CPAP, and we gave them 75 milligrams of Solreamphetol for three days and then 150 milligrams thereafter. And they had a two-week period of treatment and then a one-week washout and then a two-week placebo, and that was randomized. Some did placebo first and some did drug. And our primary endpoint was we were interested in seeing if these individuals had improvement in memory. And the test is a coding subtest. It's actually called the repeatable battery for the assessment of neuropsychological status, the R bands. It's equivalent to the digit symbol substitution test. So we, if you have numbers and you have symbols and you, then you have to fill in the symbols, you have symbols and fill in the numbers. It's, it's translational and it does require memory and speed of processing. And the second, the secondary endpoint was patient global impression of severity. And what we saw was the signal. Again, this is group data. So some patients may not respond. Some are really good responders. But when you take the group, we're looking for a biological signal. And what we saw was that the p-value of 0 0.009, there was a signal that these individuals had improvement in memory. And oh, by the way, when we talked to the patients, these sleepy people on CPAP, uh, how did they feel on the drug? Uh, the PGIS showed improvement at the p-value of 0.34. So we do see a signal here that there's less sleepiness and improvement in memory and speed of processing in these individuals. Now, obviously, we talked about the side effects um, of these medications. Um, the medicines do make us more awake. They could have some effect on sympathetic tone. Um, so we always monitor our patients for heart rate and blood pressure. And we want to make sure they have a stable cardiovascular system. They're not unstable. They don't have any angina or heart attack or heart failure or 
whatever. We want to make sure they're treated and in a stable state. And also, are they on other dopamine drugs, things that affect dopamine metabolism? I mean, these are all treatment considerations that we want to take in mind. And of course, interestingly, um, some of the patients did lose weight. Uh, I, I talked about when we're sleepy, we're hungry. So maybe when we're more awake, we're not as hungry. There was some decrease in appetite in some of the patients, and we saw a 5% uh, weight loss in 22% of the patients. Uh, it's not a weight loss drug, but certainly don't want them to gain weight. And again, this drug is renally excreted, so we do want to make sure their renal function is normal because that affects what dose we use. But there's no evidence of any SIP involvement in these. And of course, we extrapolate that over to say we're much less concerned about drug-drug interaction. So now we know about our treatment options and their considerations. How do we develop a treatment plan for our patients? So we talk to our patients, how much pain and agony they're in from their sleepiness? How is it impacting them? Is it more mood? Is it more workplace performance? Is it more driving? Um, what comorbidities do you have? What concomitant medicines are you taking? How would those potentially interact? And our young females are on birth control. Are you on birth control? Because we can't really use modafinil or armodafinil, or they have to have an alternative method. And then we have to monitor our patients. I mean, how are you doing? And when they come back to me, I ask them, are you taking a nap? Are you dozing? Uh, are you falling asleep when you're trying to stay awake? How does the sleepiness affect you? Do you is it keeping you from doing things you want to do? Um, how is your driving and workplace performance? And we, of course, we have patient-reported outcome measures that can help us with that. We always do the, we do our sleep vital signs in our clinic. We do the effort score and we do the FOSQ and we do a fatigue severity score and an insomnia index. But um, we can use these patient-reported outcome measures. And sometimes we may need objective data, particularly we don't have to do a multiple sleep latency test on these folks. But if you've got a patient, you're like, um, I want to make sure you don't have narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia. So I might need to do an MSLT or I want to look at the efficacy of the CPAP. I might have you come in and do a CPAP study and then do the NAP studies particularly if I don't have efficacy in the drugs that are approved. And I'm thinking, whoa, I need to consider other potential therapies, maybe even schedule two drugs. Um, I, I need information about the MSLT. We rarely do the MWT clinically. It's, it's primarily a research study. I'm trying to see what your baseline maintenance of wakefulness test is, and I give you a drug and what happens. We used to do the MWT for pilots and truck drivers, but that's, um, it's not exactly predictive of driving skills and, and workplace performance, but, um, but at any rate, we, we rarely do that clinically anymore. So let's get back to Donovan. He's 45 years old, has severe obstructive sleep apnea. He has been on therapy now three months, and he's adherent. I mean, he's getting eight hours, and his effort score is 13, and his download on his AHI is now normal and he's not snoring. So that should be effective in, in him. So we've looked at the CPAP, we've looked at therapy, we've looked at his circadian rhythm. What time is he going to bed? What time is he getting up? Um, is he getting enough sleep? Obviously, uh, 
quantity and quality and continuity of sleep are important. Are there any comorbidities? Is concomitant meds? Is he taking a sedating medication that makes him sleepy? No, none of those were happening in him. And so he, from my perspective, he's sort of the perfect candidate for using a wakefulness-promoting medication. And as I said, we have three potential options. So you discuss this with the patient. And I, when I talk to the patient, I'd say, well, we don't know exactly why you're still sleepy. There's some evidence that suggests, um, and I would encourage you to review this, there's some evidence to suggest in animal studies and in human studies that there are brain changes and that some of these wake-promoting areas in the brain, these subregions, dopamine, norepinephrine, even erepsin, some of these subregions might have been injured by the sleep deprivation, fragmented sleep, or the oxidative stress. But importantly, you know, you're functioning, your, your brain is working, but with these medications, we can help with the sleepiness and hopefully downstream help some of these other things. Uh, so these are very reasonable therapies to consider. So I'd, I'd like to thank you, our audience, for joining me today for this uh, wonderful program. Let's summarize our discussion with our SMART goals. We want to be specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. That is, what I hope that you will take away from this presentation is to apply to your practice and identify the prevalence and the personal impact of excessive sleepiness in patients with obstructive apnea, develop a personalized treatment plan, you know, what's, what's going on in this patient, comorbidities and current therapies that fit the patient characteristics, comorbidities and current medications, and then recognize multifactorial considerations that are necessary to treat the whole patient with excessive sleepiness caused by obstructive apnea. I call it qualify and quantify. Is the patient sleepy? How sleepy are they? And then when we quantify, what's the impact? Because these patients can be helped, obviously. So today's CMEO briefcase is part of a three-part series of case-based activities that can be found on the Sleep Disorders Hubs. I hope you'll check that out. The other two activities in the series are coming. The Sleep Disorders Hub has these activities and many others on obstructive sleep apnea, excessive sleepiness, idiopathic hypersomnia, narcolepsy, and more. And so to receive CME CE credit for this activity, participants must complete the post-test and evaluation online. Participants will be able to download and print their certificate immediately upon completion. So again, thank you for joining me today. Be safe and take care of yourselves so you can provide the best care for your patients. Thank you.